So we are going to finish Acts chapter 8. What's the cool thing about the ending of Acts chapter 8? Does anybody uh, who wants to talk about, tell me what happened at the end of Acts chapter 8? Who did, who did uh, what type of engagement did we see? Philip and the eunuch. Yes, Philip and the eunuch. What was you unique about the eunuch? <laughs> Not yeah, well, about his place in the in the book um, uh, in the in in chapter eight, or yeah, what, what's unique about him? Was he was he a Jew? No. Oh. Was he even allowed in the temple? No. He wasn't allowed in the temple because because he was a eunuch. He wasn't even allowed in the court of the Gentiles. But he, he had a desire for the things of God, and he was um, pretty much the treasurer for the queen of Ethiopia. So he was a big-time guy. Um, he traveled to journey to Jerusalem for the feast to worship. And um, on his way back, he's reading from the book of Isaiah. You just said something. Yeah. So if he's not allowed in the temple, where is he working? He can, he can only come right up to the outside of the temple and just worship. It's, he did he, that in spite of... Yeah. Because remember, so the temple was the place where God is, is where God's presence was supposed to be. But Jerusalem was the city of God. And so as a practicing Jewish person, you had to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Um, and they had some... Uh, you know, uh, alternative things that you could do if you were unable to do that. But just making the pilgrimage to Jerusalem was a, was an act of worship. And so, obviously, if you were a Gentile, you'd be able to move into the court of the Gentiles. If you were a woman, you'd be able to move into the court of the women. And then you couldn't go any further than that unless you were uh, a Jew. And even then, you could only go so, so far because then the priests, you had the court of the priests, and then you had the inner court which only went, somebody went in one time, the high priest went in one time a year. So this Ethiopian eunuch had a desire for the things of God. And, and God obviously led him there. And he got, uh, the Lord said to Philip in verse 26 of chapter eight, he said, get up and go south to the road that descends from Jerusalem to Gaza. And this is a desert road. And um, so Philip, Philip was in, does anybody remember where Philip was? Philip was in Samaria. So I'm going to, I'm going to show you some art skills real quick. So Samaria is up here. Jerusalem is down here. And I'll show you why I'm showing you this. And then Philip was here, so God tells him, Philip was in Samaria, so God says, go down to this desert road to Gaza, which is down here. And Philip gets up and goes. He doesn't say why or what, he just, he listens. So he makes this journey down to Gaza, and he has this encounter with the Ethiopian eunuch, he shows him the way to the Lord by explaining the prophecy of Isaiah 53, 
He was led as a, as a sheep to the slaughter. And he's like, who is this about? And Philip explains it to him and said, this is Jesus. And this person believed, this eunuch believed. And Saul Wooder, he goes, hey, I'm, I, I'm, I'm a believer now. I want to become a part of this. What's preventing me from being baptized? And he goes, nothing if you believe in all your heart. Now that is actually in verse 37. Hey guys, in verse 37 of chapter eight, it says, and Philip said, if you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered and said, I believe that Jesus is the son of God. Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. That is not in the early manuscripts, that one verse, but it's inferred because he says after that, he ordered the chariot to stop. He goes, what prevents me from being baptized? And he orders the chariot to stop. They go into the water and they come out and the spirit does what? What does it say the spirit does? Snatched him away. He takes him and just snatches him away and brings him to verse 40, Azotus. Now here's Azotus right here. So he takes them from Samaria. He says, go down to, Ga- go down to Gaza to, to meet this one guy, this Ethiopian eunuch, who coincidentally goes and takes the gospel back to Ethiopia. As tradition says, he became one of the first bishops in Ethiopia, started a church. Then God takes him, doesn't say go walk, go, go travel up to Gaza. He snatches him, puts him there. Why is God doing this? Why couldn't God just have snatched him from Samaria and brought him and snatched him around, right? What does that show us about how God meets people, how God saves people? He saves them all different types of ways. He does things differently all the time. And then from there, Philip goes to Caesarea, which is up here, all the way up here. And we know that's where he camps out, Caesarea. Because we find out later that he ends up having daughters there. He ends up probably planning a church or being part of a... He's, he's, he's up here. But look at that. He could have easily brought him there. He could have brought him here. But the really cool thing is that in Acts chapter 9, we meet two people. One that we've already met before, who was Peter in Acts chapter 9. And the other person that we meet in Acts chapter 9 is, right, Saul. Exactly. Yeah. But here's the cool thing. When Peter, we'll see this later. Now, this right here is along the beach of Jerusalem. So this is all the Mediterranean Sea. Peter goes to Lydia, or Lydda, I'm sorry. And Joppa over here, it's a beach town. So God's got Peter here. He's got Philip coming down here. And then he's got Paul or Saul, who he's about to encounter on the road to Damascus, and he's going to sweep him off of his horse. But I just think that this is so cool, because if this was you and I trying to figure out this, if you and I said, right, let's say we all got together, all of us 
type A personalities in the room and we're like, hey, we have a mission here, right? We do it in business. We say, let's do the plan. We got to figure out how we're going to cover this area. We would be like, all right, well, let's just logically take it down or however we would do it. But God is doing it all. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. We don't know why he's doing it, how he's doing it. And it's the same thing with our life. So don't try to figure out. Put God, don't try to put God in the box. Don't try to put God in a system. Believe the word of God and let God work and watch God work. So I just thought that the ending of this is, is pretty cool because <clears throat> he kept preaching the gospel to all the cities until he came to Samaria. Hey, Deb. And again, the one thing is as you read the book of Acts, okay, so as you go through the book of Acts, Look at the end of almost every single chapter. And, if, and, and not necessarily chapter, but every single ending of a certain story or about a certain person. Because remember, the chapters and verses were added later. <clears throat> They're not necessarily inspired. Okay, That's why you'll, sometimes I'll say, well, I think that should have ended here or that should end there without getting in trouble. <clears throat> But at the end of every one, we always see Luke saying how the gospel continues to go forward. Optimism, the gospel's going out, the people of God, even though they're getting persecuted, even though they're getting hated by those around him, he, he, you wouldn't even know that. They just keep preaching and keep going and keep moving forward. So keep that in mind as you go through the, um, the book of Acts to look at that. And so now we come to the conversion of Saul. Does anybody know what the words, the name Saul means? I'll give you a hint. It's contrasted with the name Paul means. Does anybody ever hear that? Saul means in, in um, the Hebrew, the desired one. Paul, the translation of Saul into the Greek, means little one. So he started being named, he started talk, calling himself no longer by his previous name, but there is an inkling of humility in the name that he chose, right? And Saul is obviously a very popular name in the Hebrew and the people of Israel. I mean, he was King Saul, and Saul is a very, even to this day, is a, is a, is a very well-known name. And obviously Paul is a very well-known name too. But let's read, <clears throat> let's go to the, uh, he was traveling to the road, uh, you know, he's traveling in, to, to all the synagogues and he's saying he's getting letters, he wants to go in and bring people that are Christians into captivity. He wants to wreck what they called the way. That was his na- main mission. Do you think Paul was an evil guy? Or Saul, I'm sorry, do you think Saul was an evil guy? He was zealous. He was zealous for the Lord. He thought he was serving the Lord by by getting rid of this this thing called the way that's polluting the purity of the law and the Torah and the way that we're supposed to be doing things. Meanwhile, with all that zeal, he was not converted. He was not converted. So just because we get, we do things, I shouldn't say we, because we is meaning 
you know, okay, yes, just because we do things, yeah, we may not be converted, but when you look out to people and out in the world, just because people are busy and doing things and zealous and religious and all this other stuff, without becoming that new creature that converted, we're still in our sin. So let's look at how this conversion, this is the most popular one of the most popular stories in all the Bible, if people, uh, when you ask somebody, the first thing people say when you say, when did you come to know the Lord? I found out that eight out of 10 times they say, well, I didn't have like a road to Damascus experience. Uh, you know, right, Debbie? Like it just, you know, I sort of, I don't, a, lot of the, a lot of people, I don't really know the exact time. You know, other people have, other people have are radically, I was radically converted. It was very, to me, it was like an instant. I can remember the difference, who I was and, and here. Um, and, and so that's different for everybody. But let's see what isn't different for everybody in this. Who wants to read? Let's, let's um, as Saul was traveling, verse 3, let's read from verse 3 down to verse 6, somebody. Um. Well, I'm sorry. Yes, chapter nine, Lee. I'm sorry. You're gonna ta- you're gonna do it. Taking that on. Three to six. Yeah. Now, as he went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him. And falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, "Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me?" And he said, "Who are you, Lord?" And he said, "I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But rise and enter the city." Mm. So this is an instant in time where we see two different people. (laughs) We see a verse in the scripture where one person is there, Saul. He's traveling on a road to Damascus. He falls to the ground, becomes a new person because of encountering Christ. But how about, does anybody ever, does anybody remember a story in the Gospels where somebody comes to the ground, a new person, from a, a higher elevated place, brought down to the ground? It's just, Zacchaeus. Yes, Zacchaeus. Tell us the story. What, 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 what happened there, Rich? And you don't have to quote the scripture exactly, but. Yeah, he was in the sycamore tree. Yeah. <laughs> that's so right. could see Jesus uh, uh, among the throngs of people who wanted to, who wanted to see him. Yep. And Jesus called him down from the tree and invited himself over to his house. Yes. What did, this, what did Zacchaeus, how do we know Zacchaeus was a changed individual? What did he say? He wanted to make retribution to all the um, money that he had taken from him. Yeah. His heart changed. His heart changed. And so, you see, the one common denominator doesn't matter how you were converted. It doesn't matter what type of experience you had or you didn't have. The key is in both of these examples for Zacchaeus and with Saul is not so much the person encountering Jesus as it is Jesus encountering that person. Jesus encounters Saul. Jesus encounters Zacchaeus. And when Jesus spoke to him and said, hey, I'm coming to your house tonight for dinner, Zacchaeus, the, the hated tax collector, 
fell down because of that encounter with Christ, the love that he felt from the Lord. Like Simon Peter said, Lord, get away from me. I'm a sinful man. After he told him to cast the net on the other side and he blessed him with all those fish, he encountered Jesus. But Jesus first encounters them. And that's what you're convert. That's where the conversion, that's where the new creation and is so important to make sure that you have that 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 you have that encounter with Christ, that He has encountered you, and yes, you've responded, and you've encountered Him. That's everything. And Paul even says that he goes, it doesn't matter about circumcision or uncircumcision. All that matters is that all that matters is the new creation that you are a new creature. In Christ. So how do you know if you're a new creature? How do we know if we're truly a new creature? Does anybody ever struggle with that? I know I do. I know I do. I remember when I first became uh, a, a Christian and I first became converted. Um, it was it bothered me. How do I? How do I? How do I know? I know I feel like I'm different and I want to do all this and. Um, uh, the, the pastor that I went to said, the fact that you're so concerned about this is a really good sign. <laughs> because if you weren't converted, you probably wouldn't care. And so <clears throat> what I like to look at as conversion, okay, is we have to be careful that we don't slip into a workspace mentality or a, a, um, a legalistic, for lack of a better t- term, mentality where we're constantly measuring up our works. We're constantly saying, oh, am I doing this? Am I doing that? Because I have to be that Christian as opposed to going, wow, the person that I never knew and the person I didn't want to know and the person that I actually didn't even like, now I know him and I love him, Jesus. And that's the key. Do you know Jesus? Do you love Jesus? Do you know about Jesus only? We all know about him, right? Everybody knows about Jesus. But does Jesus know you and do you know him? And you see, once that clicks in your mind that you know that you know him, then you can rest because he'll never let you go. He'll never leave you nor forsake you ever it won't happen do you believe that do you trust that because that's what christ desires of you he wants you to put all of your trust in him not like 90 percent of your trust in him and these 10 percent of me over here that has to do all this other stuff because if once i slip over here that means, oh man, that God's letting me go. No, it's not that. It's never obedience, therefore I am blessed. It's I am blessed. So therefore, now I want to obey God. I want to go out of my way and do the right thing because it's pleasing Jesus. In the Psalms, it says, I want to be able to walk in the integrity in my own, uh, walk with integrity in my own house. What does that mean? I want to walk with integrity within my own house. Think about that. It implies what? Nobody else is around. You're in your home. You're walking with integrity. Now, if you trust in yourself, 
and in your good works and in the fact that you're given this much money or the fact that you've done all this over here, which is all great stuff. But if you're trusting in that, then you can't walk with, you're not fully trusted in Christ. You're not walking with that, that you're not walking, forgive the language, naked, meaning transparent. You've got nothing to hide because Jesus is the one carrying it. So you got to put all your trust in Christ. And that's right here is the beginning what Saul, what happened to Saul. He got knocked off of his horse. He got, he met and encountered the Lord and he trusted. Why? Because Lord, what do you want me to do? Well, first he says, Lord, who, well, who are you, Lord? And in, a, and in another reiteration of this further down in the book of Acts, we learn a little bit more about this conversation he had with the Lord. But here he tells, Jesus tells him, it'll be told to you what you must do. So how many of us here know what God wants from you as it relates to what you're to do with your life? I know today God wants me here. Right here. He wants me here at church today. I don't know where he wants me tomorrow. Did Saul know what was going on tomorrow? What does this tell you about the character of Christ? What's that? Yeah, don't worry. Trust. See, what annoys me more than anything with my children is when they want to know why, 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 why. When I don't have time to tell them why. I don't have time to give them the whole explanation. Just trust me now. You can't go running out in the parking lot as a seven-year-old kid at four or three foot tall because people don't see you in the parking lot and they don't get it. Yes, they're not going to get the explanation. He would never get this explanation, Paul. Paul, guess what's going to happen? Your life is severely about to change. You are going to rethink everything you ever knew about the one true God of the Old Testament that you've studied your whole life. You are going to be used in a mighty, powerful way. You are going to go before kings. You are going to go before the Jews. You are going to go for the Gentiles. And you are going to suffer. That's where fear comes in. If you know too much, too far in advance, you get paralyzed with fear. So God wants to do the grace for the day and then. Yes. And, and, but we can't receive what Debbie just said unless we're ready to fully fall into the arms of God without seeing back. Just, you know, the trust, what do they call that? Trust fall, you know. I know that's an overused cliche, but tech, but really it, it's what we have to do. Because somebody, you know, somebody read verse, uh, verses, because what happens is, is he goes to Damascus. He's blind for three days. Everybody around him is speechless. They, were, they, they heard the voice, but they didn't see anything, we find out later. And now Ananias, obviously a different one than chapter 5, is, gets a vision from God 
to get up and go to the street called Straight, which was a major thoroughfare through the city of Damascus. It was a big Roman road, sort of like like the Garden State Parkway type of like uh, thoroughfare. Go to the house of Judas, obviously Judas, different Judas, and look for a man, Saul from Tarsus. He's praying. He's seen in a vision, you to, that you're going to come to him and so forth and so on. But I want to read, I want somebody to read verses um, 13 through 16 of, and see what Ananias says and see what Jesus says back to him. Do you have it, Debbie? Yeah. Go ahead. Lord, Ananias answered, I have heard many reports about this man and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. And he has come here with authority from the chief priests to arrest all who call on your name. But the Lord said to Ananias, Go, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings and to the people of Israel. I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. Mm. I will show him how much he has to suffer for my name's sake. Now again, Jesus is sinless. He's not a vindictive, well, I'm going to show him how much he should suffer. You know, he's not saying that. This is a part of Christianity. It's how Christianity grows. It's part of our life. It's, a, it's how the amazing wisdom of God takes something like sin and turns it into good by, by, by using sin, by using pain, by using suffering and turning that into opportunities for the gospel to transform people, but also here to bring the gospel to the entire world is really what he's saying. I will show him. Now, is this something only that applies to Paul, you think? Not the suffering part, the chosen instrument. Now, again, this isn't chosen as as it relates to predestination, election, anything like that. This isn't predestination, uh, 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 the, this isn't the context of that. The context is I'm, I've raised this guy up to go out and do some serious work, some serious business for me. And he's going to take the gospel to the Gentiles, to the Jews, and to, the, uh, to kings and rulers. He's a chosen instrument for that. Does that relate to us? So we have, we, we, we all, all of us here have, we're, we have a bunch of people in the room, thousands of people in the room, and for the recording. And um, just kidding. <laughs> we have all these people in the room here. Each of us have our own individual lives. Each of us say, wow, you look back from the time you were born, even till, till now, I don't care how young or old you are. And you see all the ups and the downs and the pain and the suffering and the loss and the gain and the victories and all this stuff. And now you have the future ahead of you. Okay? If you, if you are a carpenter, you have tools to go do carpentry work, unless you're like me and you just do, do everything with the wrong tools. If you're a mechanic, you have tools. If you're a mother, you have tools. If you're a nurse, you have tools. If you're a student, you have tools that you use. They are your instruments to get things done. A doctor in surgery, he has scalpels and all these other things that he uses very carefully 
to operate. But it's the instrument that he uses. We don't, we don't say thank you so much to the instrument, right? You don't do that. You don't praise the scalpel. You go to the doctor and say, thank you for doing such a great job. But each one of us in this room is just like that within God's hand. You are the instrument for that specific work that he has called you to do in this life at this time. And I say this all the time because this is the core, I believe, of Christianity. Obviously, knowing Christ, I'm not talking just about conversion to salvation. I'm talking about discipleship and our purpose in this world. We are chosen instruments. I, if the Lord has given me as an instrument to teach the word of God here, and I go out to that vacant lot across the street and start preaching to that building with nobody there, that is an instrument that's not doing what he was chosen to do. He's doing what he thinks is right, as silly as that may be. But take it a little bit more practical, uh, you know, and you can get really refined there. So to model Paul, we don't sit there and worry about what it is we're doing. We don't sit there and worry about, God, where do you want me to go? How do you want me to do it? No, we simply listen to the Lord. But the first thing is to know the Lord, that he have that encounter with him. Know that you are a chosen instrument and where you are right now, not physically, but where you are in your life right now is exactly where God wants you for a specific purpose. And he will use you. He will use you if you trust he will use you. I like the phrase you Yes. That we are all under the general or under the king almighty and he moves our, the troops around as he needs them in this, this sphere that we're in every day. Right. And so I just thought that was a really, uh, it stayed with me. Yeah, so yeah. We're the troops. <laughs> yeah, he, we're the troops and he has a big, he's looking down, you know, like he, know, he sees the end for the beginning of our lives, of our choices and we, you know, the, the analogy of the parade, right? When you're standing in front of a parade and watching it go by, what do you see? You, you don't see every single float, Jerry. You don't. You know what I'm saying, right? You don't see every single thing that comes by. You see the one that's right in front of you at that time and then the next one and the next one. But if you climbed up to the highest tower in that city and you look down, you would see the whole entire parade. You'd see where it's going. You would see where it's going off course you'd see the end from the beginning. And so know that God's going to move us and maneuver us because we are, he is our king. He is our general. I like the contrast yeah. uh, Pastor Pat, that, uh, between, you know, you made a very, you made a great point a few weeks ago when we were talking about Stephen uh, and the purpose that he served in that one, I mean, he prepared his whole life for that one Yes. Sermon that lives before every human being, right? That uh, that testimony of Stephen. Yeah. Um, but it was a one-day sermon compared yeah. to Paul, whose ministry lasted his entire life. Um, in either case, God chose 
that instrument for his glory. Um, so yeah, it's a great point. It's an amazing contrast, you know. Uh, yeah. So one sermon, one talk that you could have with somebody, you know, you know, one encounter that you could meet someone, give them a track or just a little, you know, most of the time, if somebody ever says, oh, when you say that, I, when I'm saying it, I don't even feel like it's any, it's profound or maybe it is, maybe it isn't. Maybe I encounter somebody on the street and I say the least profound thing I can ever say. And God uses that to transform their life and now they become an evangelist, a preacher, a teacher. They were going to divorce their wife, but now they're staying with their wife because of that one word. And now they have children and those children. And the whole course of history could change because of one word that you have with somebody. Why? Because that's got how God works. It's, you're his chosen instrument. Earlier when you were talking, I'm sorry. No, keep going. No, I want to open it up. Struck a chord with the preacher in Ecclesiastes who described everything as being absolutely meaningless, except for that one, except for that one thing that brings glory to God. You know, everything else is is. I mean, what are you doing? Yeah. What is your What is your point? It's like when when you could really consider that um, that one track that you describe, you pass out to somebody. Is probably the only. It's probably the most important thing you ever did in your life. Yeah, and we we may know it, we may not. Think, it's, yeah. It's funny. This past week, uh, well, this past week ago, my father died a year ago, um, that that Saturday, and uh, somebody thirty years ago gave. I was grieving over the fact my parents weren't saved, and thirty years ago, a friend just gave me words of just hope. You know, my father did get saved before he died, or he was saved. Um, but those 30, so last week I actually wrote a letter and said, you know, you know, you know, I haven't talked to you in 30 years, but I want you to know that one encounter I had with you um, made such a difference in my mm-hmm. future with the hope I had my parents' salvation. And, you know, she's like, whoa, you know, you never mm-hmm. think, but one encounter with a person can make such a difference. Yeah. And, you know, change how people view things and how people move on. Uh, yeah. God uses, see, this is what we have to get ingrained in our mind. God works through people, his people, and, and those that are his that are, he works through people. You see, we're, we don't see it because we're so immersed in a post-enlightenment culture where God in the enlightenment was like God is far away. It was a deist view. God is far away. He sort of wound up the clock and he's, he's sitting back. And yes, if you want to know God, you know, you pray and if he's otherworldly. He's, he's separated from his creation. Matter is bad. Spiritual is good. And so what we do is we sort of put God as this, you know, this grandpa up in the sky who's overlooking everything and sort of giving us help when we need it. And sort of the world wound up. No, the world is moving. Things are moving because God is moving in them through the people, through his people. So we have to see God uses our voice. He uses our words. He uses our actions to move forth the kingdom of God. It's not a hand. He's not a hands off guy. He is in this 
present reality working through you. And that's what we have to realize. But don't let it overwhelm you because a lot of times when people go, they go, oh my, what am I going to do now? I'm like, oh. Now, like, should I put the clipboard here, God, or should I put the clipboard here? Like, what do you want me to do, right? That's where the trust comes in. Stop. Don't do that. Just, he's giving you the word. He knows us and he knows all our That's right. So he's, he, he's, he knows our every hair and he knows every gray hair on my beard. Yes. He knows it. He, he, he's, and he uses it. I, I thought it was cool. Another, um, we see here that Paul had encountered Christ. And we know he was converted. We know he had the Holy Spirit in him. But yet Ananias had to go and lay hands on him and fill him with the Holy Spirit and anoint him for the work that he has to do. And the scales fell off his eyes. What, see, again, what do we see here? We see a different pattern of what happens. We don't see the same old thing. We didn't see Paul start speaking in tongues. But Paul later on says, I, I speak in tongues. I wish you all spoke in tongues as much as I do. I, he said he spoke in tongues, but he didn't prioritize that. He prioritized that the lowest on his lifts of the, of, of the gifts. What I'm trying to say is, is we see people get filled with the Holy Spirit. They speak in tongues sometimes. Sometimes they don't. Sometimes the wind comes in. Sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes scales figuratively fall off of our eyes. Sometimes they literally fall off of our eyes. Sometimes there's healing. It doesn't matter, but we see this anointing. And what happens right after that? He regains his sight. He eats, he's strengthened. And what does he do right after that anointing? Nah. What does he do? Yes, yes. He begins to preach the gospel immediately. Look at that in verse 20. And immediately he began to proclaim the gospel in the synagogues. In the synagogues. He went to where he knew. If that happened to you, right? So you go home to school, and let's say you just got converted today, and immediately she went back to school and started proclaiming the gospel. Or Rich, he got converted today, and immediately when he, you know, he went out to work and he started... And, or out on the, you know, shooting his pheasants and everything, and he's proclaiming the gospel, okay? So it's just where you're at. He just did the next logical thing. He wasn't like, okay, so now that I'm anointed and I'm saved and God said I'm going to go to kings and rulers and, you know, I'm going to do all this stuff. No, he just went in the synagogue because as a, as a Pharisee, he would be able to stand up and preach. As a Phar- if you weren't a Pharisee, you couldn't do that. So he was able to go up. And if there was a Pharisee that came into the synagogue that you didn't know or that we didn't know, you automatically have to say to him, would you like to say and share from the word or talk or give a word, whatever the case may be. So Paul used his leverage and said, he is the son of God. And you see on verse 22, what happens? He keeps increasing in strength. So God, when God continues to work in us, we're a work in progress. You, a year from today, you will be the same person physically. Well, some people say our body changes and we're really not. Every seven years is it that we change all of our cellular structure or something like that. 
But next year, you will be a different person spiritually than you are right now. I can say that with 100% certainty. You are going to have, because the Holy Spirit's in you. Now, you may not see the progress like we would want to see it on a profit and loss sheet. Oh, yeah, so we had this much Holy Spirit here, and now we have this much this year. We're doing good. Keep up the good work. No, maybe next year will be a hard year for you. Maybe it'll be a blessed year, but God will use it both to make you more into the person that he wants you to be, and because you're a chosen instrument, he will use it to make you apply that instrument to whatever work it is that he has. Who knows what it will be? You, could, you, you, you may not even know until you get in, pre, in the presence of the Lord and he shows us all the things that he did through our lives that we had no idea he was using us for. Shows us as we're gone, long gone, all of us in 100 years from now will all be gone. Not one of us will be here, I don't think, unless there's some sort of great technology by the time you guys get old enough. But I still, I don't, I, I don't think so. But guess what? What you did for the kingdom of God is going to be like a, that brick right there. It's, that's what you're going to look at. When you get in the glory, you're going to say, the Lord's going to say, that's the wall you built with what you did, with what you had. But Lord, I, I, I was just an introvert that stayed home and read most of the time. No, look, you don't remember this brick and that brick and this brick and that brick. And you remember when you were suffering here and you remember when you went through that and you will see that. And as we look back as the church, what does it, we are all, that, that we're the living stones, right? The living temple, the church com- makes that complete picture with Christ as the cornerstone, as the capstone. He's our head. So it's not us building, it's us building for and towards by the power of the Holy Spirit. Does everybody get that? That's what we're seeing here. So let's look, um, I'll just give you some couple facts and then we'll we'll close up here. So as he started to increase in strength and he confounded the Jews, we're at verse 22, the Jews started saying, we got to get rid of this guy, Saul. Let's kill him. But the disciples took him out and in a wall, lowering him in a large basket. Could you imagine like if that, like this type of stuff happening here, we're looking at it and we see such true authentic conversion. But I believe nowadays it's hard for us to see this because a lot of times People come to church or come to Christ because they want a better life. They want to be more happy. They want to be, you know, I want things, so I'm going to go to God for those things. Yeah. Yeah, he de- definitely, he uses it all different ways to bring us in. But then, you know, when you start getting persecuted and suffering and things like that, and you get lowered out buildings with ba- from a basket and you're getting snuck around and, you know, you're getting kidnapped like these people in Haiti and, and Afghanistan and all this stuff. It's like, wow, like what, what is the Lord doing? 
But we don't get to, we don't see that so much. We, we are, we're in a culture that is very much, a lot of people just look for the impact. I want the worship to make me feel good. The preacher has to make me feel good. And this has to make me feel good. And Jesus is saying, look, I want to change you. I want this to be about the word of God. And yes, you're going to have to, you're going to have to have some trials and tribulations for this thing to be authentic because that's how he works. So anyway, verse 26, there's actually a three-year gap. So you, you see, after they lowered him down, he comes to Jerusalem three years later. And the, the, even then, the disciples were afraid of him. But Barnabas, who was the encourager, he finds him and brings him to the apostles and says, basically, hey, this, this is pretty, you know, this guy's a good guy. And then he goes down to Caesarea, and then he goes down to, to, goes to Tarsus. And he stays there for about 10 or 15 years. So a total time until he goes out on his first missionary journey from the time he was converted is between 13 and 15 years. So it's not like he was like swept up and now he's Billy Graham going out on tour, right? God, you, God dealt with him for 15 years. He worked as a tent maker. He he was probably, he's recalibrating, unlearning all the stuff, and now yet clicking it all together from the Old Testament and putting this narrative together of, the, of Jesus and how he is the Messiah, and God prepared him with the word of God. And then look, look how Luke ends this, this part of this section of the chapter before we start a new section, which is with Peter. Verse 31, Zoe, do you have it? Want to read it? So the church throughout all of Judea and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up, and walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit and multiplying. There you go. I could be a church growth consultant. (laughs) Right now. You want to grow as a church? You want you want to see the the church increase because we want to see the Lord work, not because we want to say, oh, we have a hundred people at our church or we're, we got, you know, everything. No, we want to see people going on in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit amidst the crazy world around us. We're in the comfort of the Holy Spirit. And then when you do that, the church continues to increase because that's ultimately what people want. They can't find it anywhere else. The void that's in everybody's heart, for lack of a better way to say it, is that they are missing the component piece that makes them a real human being, a true human being, what God intended from the beginning. And that is the ability to fellowship with the living God, the ability to know the living God. And that's where the comfort comes from. Did you have something to say, Richard? I didn't. So next time, next week, we will look at Peter and the second half of of the book of, of, I'm sorry, of chapter eight. I'm sorry, chapter nine, which now we see Peter's ministry and we don't see Paul again until chapter 13. So the Lord takes us through 10, 9, 10 and 11 and 12 and tells us all about Peter. And then we see Paul's missionary, first missionary journey in chapter 13. But again, remember, the eunuch, the other unique thing about the eunuch was that he was a Gentile. 
Right? So we see the gospel right there. Philip was in Samaria, comes down, ministers, foreshadows what's to come. And what's to come? The Gentiles are now going to be included in the church. They're going to hear the gospel. That's what we're going to see next, next time we're here. We're going to see Peter starting to inch his way more and more closer to that until finally he, we meet Cornelius, who is the, you know, uh, the prototype of the Gentile believer, Roman, and, and, and it just blows up from there. So anyway, any other questions before we close? Um, well, I don't think he, I didn't, I don't know for a fact that he was trained for 15 years, but he did say that when he was in that hiatus from the time of, he left, um, Caesarea and went to Tarsus, he explains that it was a period of about 13 years. And he says that he got the gospel that he's preaching, not from the apostles. He says, the ones that were the big shots really didn't tell me much. It was Jesus himself who ministered to him during that period of time for 13 years. So that's how I'm, that's what I'm referring to, that period of time where he spent with the Lord. And I don't know exactly where he says that, but it's in, it's in Acts. I'll let, I think it's in Acts, but that's a good, uh, a good note to find out. You could, you could probably pull it up fairly quickly. Of the passage of where Jesus talks about pouring new wine into old wineskins. Mm-hmm. Seems to describe what he did to Paul. Yeah. Pouring new, I mean, creating a new wineskin. Yeah. I know. It's amazing. The grace of God. Well, let's praise him in prayer. Father, we love you. We praise you for the work that you do in us, that you've encountered us, Lord. While we were yet sinners, you died for us. Uh, You've given us your Holy Spirit. We thank you for that. Just go before us now, Lord, and as we continue to worship you through song and prayer um, and and the teaching of the word, continue your work in us. The chosen instruments, Lord, that you've, whatever it is you have for us, Lord, please let your will be done. In Jesus' name, amen.